welcome to the EU public meeting. We actually get underway now. Now, we're looking at the book of Isaiah. If you've been with us over the course of the year, I'm going to attempt to do something very silly with the book of Isaiah. But we'll see how we go with that. It's good to try to finish the year on an ambitious note. Many years ago, I had the privilege of travelling to Nepal. Who's been to Nepal? Anyone here been to Nepal? Once upon a time, it was a very popular tourist destination. I don't think there's anyone been in any of the EU public meetings this week who's actually been to Nepal. But there you go. The great attraction of going to Nepal is, of course, you get to see the Himalaya Mountains. And we went to a particular place called Pokhara. Uh, and it's a bit of a touristy destination. And the reason it's a tourist destination is because from Pokhara, you get access into the Himalayas. So it's a base for a lot of trekking that you can go and do. So we were there with a bunch of friends, which was fantastic. We were sitting in a guest house in Pokhara, and from the roof of this guest house, you had this astounding view of the Himalaya Mountains. Well, it would be astounding, except, of course, we were there in the monsoon, uh, which is not a time to go to see the Himalayas, because you don't see anything, because they're completely covered in cloud the whole time. We were in Nepal for a month, and saw the Himalayas twice, a total of about five minutes out of a month. But one of those moments was at this guest house, one of our crew raced down and said, quick, you've got to come up to the roof. We raced up to the roof, and uh, on this particularly bright and beautiful morning, the clouds parted just for about 10 minutes and we saw the Himalaya Mountains. And it was astounding. It really was an astounding view. Now, my experience of being in Nepal was not quite what I'd hoped, but partly because we'd gone there to do some trekking, but trekking in the monsoon, it turns out to be quite dangerous because there's you know, things like the paths wash away. But... Um, some of our crew did manage to go trekking. And I would have loved to have joined them, except I wasn't able to because I had visa trouble. So I actually, my Nepali adventure consisted of travelling on overnight buses to and from the Nepali capital, where I would sort of bang heads with various visa officials to try to get my visa renewed. That was my experience of Nepal. That story will have to wait for another day, I think. But as we sat on the roof of the guest house and looked at the Himalayas, I had a very different experience to my friends who'd been trekking because they were able to look at the mountains and they actually said, oh, wow, that's Mount whatever. Remember, we saw that when we walked up that valley and looked back. We saw that mountain from another point of view. And so they actually are familiar with the very things they were looking at. Whereas as I looked at it, it was really all unexplored territory for me. So we had quite different experiences. What we're going to do today is sit on the roof of the guest house. See, what I've tried to do as we've looked at the book of Isaiah is, Isaiah is a very big book, 66 chapters, lots and lots of verses. I've tried to get you familiar with the topography of Isaiah. I've done it in a couple of different ways. The first half of the year, pretty much what I did is I tried to bundle you into my light plane and we would fly through along vast tracks of the Himalayas. We say, let's go whiz through this valley, then up around that mountain, down into the next valley, and then whiz around there and look back where you came from. Right? And we try to cover five, ten chapters at a time. Second half of the year, I've tried something different. I've jumped you in my helicopter, and we've gone and landed on a particular mountaintop, and I've said, right, see this? We'll explore around here, and then we're going to jump along this mountain ridge to the next mountaintop, and the next one, and the next one, and we've traced some themes through the second half of the book, from Isaiah 40 to 66. Two different approaches, trying to, but both trying to do the same thing, look 
get you familiar, not just with particular spots in the Book of Isaiah, but actually how it all sort of fits together. Well, today we're back on the roof of the guest house. We're looking at the whole lot, and I'm going to say, let's, let's look at the whole Book of Isaiah in the next 20 minutes. That's the goal, okay? And I'm hoping for that this for you will not... If this is your first public meeting, I'm sorry, but you're going to be like me, sitting on the guest house roof going, wow, I've never, read, never been through there. But if you've been with us, then hopefully... As we're looking at different things, you'll go, oh, yes, I remember that. Oh, yes, yes, I remember that. But this will not be unexplored territory for you. And what we want to come out with is really, what is the message of this book in God's Word? What is the message of the book of Isaiah? Can you just distill it down and have your life changed by God's Word out of this very big book? That's what we're going to try and do. So, what is the book of Isaiah about? At first glance, you would think by looking at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, you would think that the book of Isaiah is actually about the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah. Have you got Isaiah there? Be helpful to look on. We're going to flick around a little bit looking at some key things. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah saw, the vision that came from the Lord. It's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's what you think the book's about. In fact, if you flip all the way to Isaiah 66 and read through Isaiah 66, the last chapter, you'll see again Jerusalem features. Not just mentioned, it features. So you think, oh, well, very clearly, if you want to know a book like all you English students, you just read the first chapter, read the last chapter, go and do your exams. No problem, right? Well, here, you say, right, it's about Judah and Jerusalem. Except I think that's wrong. It sort of is about that, but that's not what it's really about. The thing you actually need to notice is who's the first and the last person who speaks? I reckon that tells you. And it's not really Isaiah who speaks. The person who speaks here is Yahweh. In your Bible it's translated as the Lord in capital letters, which is a name, Yahweh, the God of this nation Israel who we know the other side of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the God and Father of Jesus Christ. That is who speaks first in this book, there in verse 2, Isaiah chapter 1. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's Yahweh who speaks first. And if you go right to the very last chapter of the book, Isaiah 66, repeatedly through that chapter you're told, the Lord, Yahweh, declares, Yahweh says, Yahweh declares, Yahweh, all the way through Clearly, actually, what this book is about is about it's a word coming from this God, Yahweh, the Lord. That's what it's a revelation from this God to his people and actually to the whole world. Listen, you heavens, hear me, O earth. It's addressed to the whole world. And yes, it concerns Judah and Jerusalem, but what this book is about is actually it's about Yahweh, the Lord. That's what this book is about. So what do we learn about Yahweh in this book? Well, there's a lot, we learn lots and lots of things, right? We learn lots of things about the Lord. But here's two. I reckon you can summarise it into two statements. So I'm going to try and do that. Two statements. First. First statement is, the Lord, Yahweh, is the only and the exalted God. And then there's going to be a second part of that statement in a moment. But I think the first thing you learn about the Lord in this book of Isaiah is this. 
that the Lord, this particular God, the God of Israel, is the only and the exalted Lord. Where would you learn that in this book of Isaiah? Where have we seen that? Well, the, that he is the only God, you might like to jot down, you would see that, for example, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. You might like to turn that up, just to refresh your memories. Isaiah 44, verse 6. We looked at this earlier this semester, actually. This is what the Lord says. Who's the Lord? Who's this Yahweh? Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. He is the only God that is truly a God. There is only one God in all the world. It is this God. You learn that he's the only one. And what's more, what is this God like? I think one of the preeminent things you want to learn about this God from the book of Isaiah is that he is exalted. Anyone think of a moment, a passage in the book of Isaiah which really communicates to you how awesome or exalted God is? Chapter 6, Isaiah 6. What happens in Isaiah 6? That's where Isaiah receives his commission to be a prophet. And how does it go? You remember this is the moment where he's... When he gets a vision of God, it is he, God is so exalted, so holy, that Isaiah falls down as though dead. Isaiah chapter 6, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple was a very big building. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, right? At the time. And, and really, he, just the hem of, of the Lord's robe filled the entire temple complex. That's how exalted he is. Or if you want another example, uh, flick to Isaiah 66, the very last book of the uh, book of the chapter of the book, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now just think about that for a moment. The Lord sits on the sky. You'd have to be pretty big, wouldn't you? to sit on the sky, and he puts his feet on the earth. He's big. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, and he goes on, where's the house that you would build for me? And as soon as you've got, yeah, that's how big he's sitting on the sky. Yeah, okay, it's going to be tricky to build him a house, isn't it? Where's the house you can build for me, he says. Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. He is the sovereign, almighty creator. He is extreme in his holiness, in his otherness, in his purity, in his, in his distance from us. That is who the one true God is. This is a key truth of the book. The Lord is the only and exalted God. However, there's a second part to this sentence. See, I think if you went out there and you talked to people... You say, what's God like? You say, oh, well, God's big. This is not a radical truth in one sense. I mean, his holiness, just the sheer extent of his otherness, that might be a bit radical, but, but most people would sign off on this. It's the second half of this sentence that is really, really unexpected. Because the truth that you get from the book of Isaiah is the Lord is the only exalted God who dwells with the contrite and the lowly in spirit. 
This is a very unexpected truth. The Lord who is so mighty and exalted and holy, he comes and dwells with particular people. Who, who would this God who sits on the sky come and make his home? He says, I make my home with the lowly in spirit, the humble, the contrite, the repentant. You can see it here in uh, chapter 66, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, straight after that bit I just read. The Lord says, verse 2, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. The people the Lord comes to live with are those who tremble at his word, who are repentant, who humble themselves before him. This is the amazing truth in some ways of the Christian gospel. This is the amazing truth of who God is when he reveals himself. You would think if he's so exalted and holy, he would remain distant from us, but he doesn't. He draws near to particular people, those who humble themselves before him. So, out of this truth, I think there are three questions that you can ask. Question one is this. Is your God, asking this of you, is your God too small? Have you taken account, have you today taken account, if this is the only God who truly exists, have you taken account of how exalted he is? Or is your God too small? See, this was Israel's problem right throughout the book of Isaiah. They forgot how exalted God was, how mighty he was. And so they started taking him for granted. In fact, it worked out in two ways. First of all, they thought, well, God's, God's, God's small and containable, therefore... As long as I just do outward sort of religious practice, outward religious observance, it doesn't really matter about all the other stuff I do. Because God's, you know, it's not that big a deal. Right? So a small God results in superficial faith. But the other, track, the other problem was, because they thought God was small and therefore not a big deal, they thought they could have him and other gods. They went... Uh, small God leads to syncretism where you, you sort of think, oh, I'll have this God and a bit of that God and a bit of that God, right? If you get that the only God who really is God is exalted and is mighty like this, you start to go, ah, oh, those things aren't going to work. I can't just have a superficial faith. I can't be a syncretist and try to take on other gods as well. So my question to you today is, is your God this God? Or is your God too small? You know how you test? You know how you work out the simple test? Do you tremble at his word? Right? Now, if the one true God who really exists, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, revealed himself to you this afternoon, there you are, sitting on public transport, and suddenly you're transported in the Spirit and you get a vision of the one true God, you're probably going to do what I... I mean... It's the same God. You will fall down on your face as though dead like Isaiah did. And you'll say, woe is me, like Isaiah did. You would be trembling, right? But you know, you might not have seen the vision, but you've heard the same God speak here in his word. 
Do you tremble at his word? As we take this truth and we, and we sort of look at it now from the other side of the Lord Jesus Christ and the greater revelation that's come to us as, as followers of this God, has come in Jesus and through the writers of the New Testament, you see that this reinforced in the New Testament when we're told it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's addressed to Christians. If you want to know whether your God's too small or not, ask the question, do you tremble at his word? Second question I want you to ask. Is your God too distant? See, the second half of this truth from Isaiah is that this exalted, amazing, holy God is the one who dwells with the contrite and loving spirit. He is not distant from us. He draws near to his repentant people. And uh, I think this... This truth has real resonance today because I think most people, if you ask them about God, they will they think God is distant from them. Uh, lots of people who you know we know and love who might be followers of other faiths, other religions. You ask them what their God is like. It, normally, God is very distant. God might be awesome and astounding, but actually, He's not personal. He doesn't draw near with compassion and kindness and generosity and graciousness. To his people. He's someone to be feared but not treasured in that same sort of way. But the truth of the one true God, the only God who really exists, is that he draws near to the lowly and repentant and contrite. Do you know that truth? Have you taken great comfort in that truth? God is not just out there. I mean, I know sometimes he feels like he's on the way, but the truth here is that he has drawn near to you if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. In fact, how near has he drawn to you? He became a person and lived among us as the Lord Jesus Christ and then poured out his spirit into your heart if you're a follower of Jesus. That's how near he's drawn to you. Is your God too distant? Have you forgotten this truth? And the final question I want you to ask about this truth is this. Oh. How did I phrase it? I want to get it right. Ah, that's right. Is your heart too proud? And sometimes I've, I've mentioned this a little already. One of the implications of this truth for us is that if God is this God who draws near to the lowly and humble and those who tremble at his word, the question we need to walk out today asking ourselves is, do, is my heart too proud or have I humbled myself before him? It's very interesting, uh, you know, in the book of Isaiah, we, we hear lots of times that, yes, God draws near to the contrite and lowly in spirit. And you know where that, that sort of idea is echoed in the New Testament? It's in, the, it's in the mouth of the Lord Jesus. You know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, uh, chapter 5, uh, the Beatitudes? Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's very familiar, isn't it? Lowly in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And in Isaiah, the mourning is not because someone's died. You're mourning over the sins of God's people. Jesus, I think, in the Beatitudes, is actually picking up this, these truths from Isaiah and, and uh, announcing them again to God's people that this remains the truth. 
God will draw near to these people who are humble at his word. The contrite, the repentant. And so the question we need to walk away is, is my heart too proud or have I humbled myself before God? Do I tremble at his word? Or am I so enamoured of my own giftedness, the great blessing I am to the people of the world and to God's church? Like, you know, it's, just, it's very easy to say in a big picture of yourself. But surely this picture of God is meant to encourage you to remember to be humble before him. And then the great comfort is he will draw near to you. Okay, so that's the first truth. Second truth about God is this. The Lord is gracious and faithful and he saves through his servant. Here's the second truth. The Lord is gracious and faithful and he saves through his servant. You see this truth in the book of Isaiah played out in three ways. Three spheres of salvation. And in some ways it starts at a sort of a, a top level and then it gets deeper and wider. I'll explain what I mean. The first sphere or area where this truth is played out is about the city of Jerusalem. Sitting now on top of Mount Zion. In the, in the context of Isaiah, Jerusalem is under threat twice. What are the two threats? Anyone remember? Who was the first big threat? Assyria. Assyria was the threat. Then after Assyria, the second half of the book from chapter 40 onwards, prophetically, it was Babylon. Prophetic vision seeing the threat. Both times the Lord saves his people in the book of Isaiah through his servant. When the Assyrians had come into Judah and taken the whole land up until the very walls of Jerusalem, finally God's people did the right thing. They did what God had told them to do, which was do nothing, wait for the Lord to deliver you, pray. So they did that, finally, and it was an angel of the Lord that went out and smote the Assyrians. So that the servant here was an angel of the Lord who did the deliverance, who brought the salvation. In, with respect to the Babylonians, Isaiah, it's revealed through Isaiah that prophetically what the Lord's servant, and it's called the Lord's servant, who will rescue them from exile is Cyrus the Persian. And historically this happens a couple hundred years later. Cyrus, the leader of the Persians, uh, they, he comes and the Persians kick the Babylonians' butt and basically that means that God's people are able to go back to Jerusalem and Judea. So the Lord delivers through his servant. Except, how come God's people went into exile anyway? How come the Assyrians were allowed to get all up to... It's because actually this wasn't just a bad thing that happened to them. This was actually part of God's refining of his people. It was part of his purification of his people to bring them to repentance and greater trust in him. Why was that? Well, it was because there was a bigger problem. The bigger problem was their hearts. Here's the people of God, the Israelites, 
And what's their problem? Their problem is sin. That is the enemy who's waging war against them. How, how does God, this is the deeper problem, how does God bring salvation in the book of Isaiah to the sin problem? Well, he does it through the servant of the Lord. And here you have all those servant songs that we looked at. What does the servant of the Lord do about the sin problem? Well, he dies for the sins of the people. He is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Lord lays on him the sins of us all. So the servant dies for the sins of the people. That's part of the solution. However, that sort of isn't the full picture. And there's just a hint in the book of Isaiah that God's going to do something to fix the problem permanently. Like the servant deals with the consequences and the guilt of the sin, but what's going to stop God's people sinning again? The answer there is the Spirit of the Lord. And so there's just a few little places in the book of Isaiah, particularly uh, chapter 59, verse 21, where you can see God's promising to pour out his spirit on his people and that's what's going to enable them to live for him. So there's part of God's solution. And then finally, there is the wider problem, or the, the wider salvation. Because what you see in the book of Isaiah, it's not just about sin in God's people, because that problem of sin is not restricted to God's people, it actually involves all people. And what you get in the book of Isaiah is that sin, our sin, has somehow impacted on all of creation. And you go right back to Genesis chapter 3 and you can see that as a result of human sin, all of creation has been shackled to decay. And so the bigger, the wider vision is actually for all of creation. That's Australia, right? And there's other countries. <laughs> <laughs> the wider picture of salvation in the book of Isaiah covers the whole created order. And where does that end up? Well, it ends up in Isaiah 66, or 65 and 66, with a promise of a whole new created order. A new creation, a new heavens and earth. This is what God's going to do. And how is he going to bring that about? He does it through his servant. He does it through the Messiah. You might look at Isaiah chapter 11 there. And you can see that as a result of the work of the Messiah and his reign, his kingdom established, that there will be peace in all of God's creatures and creation in a way that takes it all the way back before the fall. This is the big picture of salvation in the book of Isaiah. So, I'm going to finish by just saying to you, here's the three questions I think you can draw out of that. Three questions for yourself. First is this. Is your gospel big enough? Is your gospel, is your good news that you put your hope and trust in big enough? Is it as big as the vision of Isaiah? That actually what God is going to do is not just bring God's people back to Jerusalem. It's not just even fix the sin problem. But he's actually going to renew all of creation and fix up all the muck. Is, that is good news, right? That's the good news of the book of Isaiah. That's, that's the extent of the vision. You see, when Isaiah, from the prophecy he received from the Lord, saw, you know how far he saw? He didn't just see forward to the Assyrians being kicked out or the return from exile. He saw 
all the way to the new creation. He saw, under the power of God, beyond where you and I live. He saw all the way to the new creation. Now, as we move through the greater revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, we are now privileged to see that in even finer resolution than he could possibly see. But do you see the extent of the vision of Isaiah? It goes all the way to the new age. Okay, is your gospel big enough? Second question for you. Second question is, is your Jesus too faint? Who is the man, we now, on the other side, in the New Testament age, who stands at the centre of this greater salvation, this deeper and wider salvation? Jesus walks onto the stage of history and says, I'm the guy. The servant of the Lord, that's me. The Messiah from David's line, that's me. The branch from that's me. I am the guy. And by what he taught, by what he did, by his death, gloriously by his resurrection, by the, by the New Testament witness of those who knew him and heard him, they will say, yes, it's him. Jesus stands at the centre of this astounding gospel that is going to see the renewal of all the creation and your Jesus stands there not just as a, as, a, as a figure in the past or in the development of it, he stands today as Lord over all for this gospel. He's not just like Moses. Like I'm looking forward to meeting Moses, right? In, the, in, in glory, you know, Moses, wow, that would be amazing. You know, Moses, great, I read, read some of your stuff. And <laughs> Abraham and, and these guys... Jesus is not in the same category of just another person from your Christian sort of history baggage stuff. Jesus at the centre of this. Is your Jesus too faint? Does he live vibrantly in your vision of your life today, tomorrow, for how many of years the Lord gives you? Finally, finally, is your life too quiet. All the way through the book of Isaiah, when you start to get how, how awesome is God's great gospel and what he's planning to do, his picture of salvation, his promise of salvation, every now and then the book erupts in praise. Because how else? How else can you respond to this except praise God? It's amazing. You thank him, but you don't just do it under the stairs with the covered door shut. Praise you, God. Praise you. That's great. No, they praise publicly. They praise to all the world. My question is, is your life too quiet? As someone who not just knows this, but someone who by God's grace has been inserted into it. This is your story. This is your life in Christ. Is your life too quiet? And if, you're, if this is your final moment in an EU public meeting, if you're about to head out into all the world, pray, I mean, God's blessing be upon you. Don't live a quiet life for the Lord Jesus. Don't live a quiet life. His gospel is too great. His holiness is too awesome. His Jesus is too wonderful. Praise him.